You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for subscribing to the Premium Podcast. You know, one of the things that I said that you would receive as part of that subscription is some bonus episodes. In the episode on called Unfriending, which was on the letters between Jefferson and Adams, the correspondence that had been interrupted by the two of them being involved in various parties and factions and partisan politics, and then for a decade not writing each other, even though they had been good friends previously. It was the intervention, you'll remember, of their mutual friend, Benjamin Rush, a doctor in Philadelphia and also one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, who kept prying both people, Jefferson and Adams, to write each other. He had a great dream that these two signers would be reunited and and coaxed him to write letters to Jefferson. To Jefferson, he, he said the same, and Jefferson wrote back that he had had a quarrel with several letters in 1804 with Abigail Adams, and that was the last contact that he had with the Adams family, and that the letters indicated that there might be some hostility. And he said, you know, view these letters and see what you think. So that didn't get it going. And then it was the surprise visit of a Virginian who knew Thomas Jefferson to John Adams when he was visiting New England, and he heard John Adams make some positive comments about Thomas Jefferson. That was well-received by Jefferson, and then some more prodding from Rush, and the two began writing again. It starts with John Adams writing to Jefferson, of course, and that is January 1st, 1812, the first letter. Dear Sir, As you are a friend to American manufacturers under proper restrictions, especially manufacturers of the domestic kind, I take the liberty of sending you by post a packet containing two pieces of homespun, lately produced in this quarter by one who was honored in his youth with some of your attention and much of your kindness. Adams in this letter is referring to his son, John Quincy Adams. All of my family, whom you formerly knew, are well. My daughter Smith is here and has successfully gone through a perilous and painful operation, which detains her here this winter from her husband and her family at Shenango, where one of the most gallant and skillful officers of our revolution is probably destined to spend the rest of his days, not in the field of glory, but in the hard labors of husbandry. He's referring to Colonel William Stephen Smith, and his farm was in Lebanon in Madison County, New York, in the Chenego Valley. But actually, his political career would not end because he'd be elected a congressman from that state. I wish you, sir, many happy New Year's, and that you may enter the next and many succeeding years with as animating prospects for the public as those at present before us. I am, sir, with a long and sincere esteem, your friend and servant, John Adams. 
And the response that Jefferson writes, this is going to be one of the few times that this happens in their correspondence between 1812 and 1826, but Jefferson's response is longer. Jefferson to Adams, January 21st, 1812. I thank you, sir, beforehand, for they have not yet arrived, for the specimens of homespun that you have been so kind as to forward me by post. I doubt not their excellence, knowing how far you are advanced in these things in your quarter. Here we do little in the fine way, but in a coarse and middling goods a great deal. Every family in the country is a manufactory within itself, and is very generally able to make within itself all the stouter and middling stuffs for its own clothing and household use. We consider a sheep for every person in the family as sufficient to clothe it, in addition to the cotton, hemp, and flax, which we raise ourselves. For is to say, of company establishments we have none. We use little machinery. For fine stuff, we shall depend on your northern manufacturers. The spinning jenny and loom with the flying shuttle can be managed in a family, but nothing more complicated. The economy and thriftiness resulting from our own household manufactures are such that they will never again be laid aside, and nothing more salutary for us has ever happened than the British obstructions to our demands for their manufactures. Restore free intercourse when they will. Their commerce with us will have totally changed its forms, and the articles we shall in the future want from them will not exceed their own compensation of our produce. So you have a couple things there in the beginning of his response to Adam's first letter. But the main thing to understand is that he's misunderstood the situation. He believes that the homespun that Adams has sent him is a piece of clothing, because that's what it uh, would normally refer to. But Adams is being a little coy, and actually the homespun that he sent is several books by his son, John Quincy Adams, that he thinks Jefferson will find interesting. But nonetheless, Jefferson responds with a little bit about a salute to the American home and a little jab at the British. Why not? A letter from you calls up recollections very dear to my mind. It carries me back to the times when, beset with difficulties and dangers, we fellow laborers in the same cause, struggling for what is most valuable to man, his right. It carries back to me to the times when, beset with difficulties and dangers, we were fellow laborers in the same cause, struggling for what is most valuable to man, his right of self-government, laboring always at the same oar, with some wave ever ahead threatening to overwhelm us, and yet passing harmlessly under our bark. We knew not how. We rode through the storm with heart and hand, and made a happy port. Still, we did not expect to be without rubs and difficulties. We had them. First, the detention of our western posts, the coalition at Pillance, outlawing our commerce with France, and the British enforcement of the outlawry. He's referring to privateering. In your day, French depredations, in mine English, 
and the Berlin and Milan decrees, now the English orders of council and the piracies they authorize. When these shall be over, it will be the impressment of our seamen or something else. And so we have, we have gone on. We shall go on puzzled and prospering beyond example in the history of man. And I do believe we shall continue to growl. Um, I do believe we shall continue to grow, although he misspells it growl, to multiply and prosper until we exhibit an association powerful, wise, and happy beyond what has yet been seen by men. As for France and England, with all of their preeminence in science, the one is a den of robbers, the other of pirates. And if science produces no better fruits than tyranny, murder, and destitution of national morality, I would rather wish our country to be ignorant, honest, and esteemable as our neighboring savages are. But whither is this leading me? Into politics, of which I have taken final leave. I think little of them, and say less. I have given up newspapers in exchange for Tacticus, and Thucydides, for Newton, and Euclid, and I find myself much happier. Sometimes, indeed, I look back to former occurrences in remembrance of our old friends and fellow laborers who have fallen before us. Of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, I see now living not more than half a dozen on your side of the Potomac, and on this side myself alone. You and I have been wonderfully spared, and myself with remarkable health and a considerable activity of body and mind. I am on horseback three or four hours a day, visit three or four times a possession I have 90 miles distant, performing the winter journey on horseback. I walk little, however, a single mile being too much for me, and I live in the midst of my grandchildren, one of whom lately has promoted me to be a great-grandfather. I have heard with pleasure that you also retain good health and a greater power of exercise in walking than I do. But I would rather have heard this from yourself and that writing a letter like mine full of egotisms and details of your health, your habits, occupation, and enjoyments. I should have the pleasure of knowing that in the race of life you do not keep in its physical decline the same distance ahead of me which you have done in political honors and achievements. No circumstances could have lessened the interest I feel in these particulars respecting yourself. None have suspended for one moment my sincere esteem for you. And now I salute you with unchanged affections and respect. Thomas Jefferson One little note there. He notes the uh, status of declaration signers. And we do have that information as the time he's writing the letter. Ten signers of the Declaration, including John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, were alive when he's writing the letter in 1812. Elbridge Gerry, Robert Treat Payne, William Ellery, William Floyd, Benjamin Rush, George Clymer, Thomas McKean, Charles Carroll. He is correct that he is the only signer from the South still alive. 
He refers to a possession that he has 90 miles distant. This is Poplar Forest in Bedford County, Virginia. Thomas Jefferson acquires it in 1774 from his father-in-law's estate. He builds an octagon house there while he's president. Now, the next letter, and this is a rare event in their correspondence as well, to get a double letter from Jefferson. But he's going to write another letter two days later on January 23rd. And there's a reason for it, because a package has arrived. Jefferson to Adams. The messenger who carried my letter of yesterday to the post office brought me thence. On his return, the two pieces of homespun, which had been separated by the way from your letter of January 1st. A little more sagacity of conjecture in me as to their appellation would have saved you the trouble of reading a long dissertation on the state of real homespun in our quarter. The fact stated, however, will not be unacceptable to you, and the less when it is considered as a specimen only of the general state of our whole country and its advance towards an independence of foreign supplies for the necessary manufactures. And now he turns to the books that now he's discovered Adams has in having closed in in his first letter, but arrived a few days later. Some extracts from the volumes, which I had seen in the public papers, had prepared me to receive them with favorable expectations. These have not been disappointed, for I have already penetrated so far into them as to see that they are a mind of learning and taste, that they are a mine of learning and taste and a proof that the author of the positive reviews of Ames and Pickering excels in more than one character of writing. The thanks, therefore, which I had rendered by anticipation only in my letter, I reiterate in this postscript on the knowledge of their high merit, and avail myself of the occasion it further, well, and avail myself of the occasion it furnishes of repeating the assurances of my sincere friendship and respect. Thomas Jefferson. February 3rd, Adams writes back. Sitting at my fireside with my daughter Smith on the 1st of February, my servant brought me a bundle of letters and newspapers from the post office in this town. One of the first letters that struck my eye had the postmark of Milton, 23rd January 1812. Milton is the next town to Quincy, and the post office is but three miles from my house. How could the letter be so long in coming three miles? Reading the superscription. I instantly handed the letter to Miss Smith. Is that not Mr. Jefferson's hand? Looking attentively at it, she answered, it is very like it. How is it possible a letter from Mr. Jefferson could get to the Milton post office? Opening the letter, I found it, indeed, from Monticello, in the hand and with the signature of Mr. Jefferson. But this did not much diminish my surprise. How is it possible that a letter can come from Mr. Jefferson to me in seven or eight days? I had no expectation of an answer. Thinking the distance so great in the road, so embarrassed under two and three months, maybe. This history would not be worth recording, but for the discovery it made of a fact very pleasing to me, that the communication between us is much easier, sure, and maybe more frequent, that I had ever believed or suspected to be possible. Now, that gives you uh, an interesting point 
on the status of communications in early America. So certainly from his perception, John Adams, and knowing how life was during his lifetime in the 18th century, and how bad the roads were, and how difficult it was to send letters, and how long it would it would take to get a letter in seven or eight days. We're seeing a, a different r- speed of communications in 1812. Now, suspect it's hurried a bit because of the name who's on the envelope, but nonetheless, uh, you're you're definitely seeing something there. The material of the samples of American manufacture which I am sent to you is not which was uh, which I have sent to you is not wool or nor cotton nor silk nor flax nor hemp nor iron nor wood. They were spun from the brain of John Quincy Adams and consist in two volumes of his lectures on rhetoric and oratory, delivered when he was a professor of that science in our University of Cambridge. A relation of mine, a first cousin of my ever honored beloved beloved and rev- revered mother, Nicholas Boylston, a rich merchant of Boston, bequeathed by his will a donation for establishing a professorship. And John Quincy Adams, having in his veins so much of the blood of the founder, was most earnestly solicited to become the first professor. The volumes I sent you are the fruit of his labor during the short time he held that office. But it ought to be remembered that he attended his duty as a senator of the United States during the same period. It is with some anxiety submitted to your judgment. Now, you can see from that paragraph that he hasn't yet received the letter of the 23rd from Jefferson, where Jefferson acknowledges that. Oh, I I see it's not clothing, it's books. So, nonetheless, he's going to respond to what Jefferson said. Your account of the flourishing state of manufacturers and families in your part of the country is highly delightful to me. I wish the spirit may spread and prevail through the Union. Within my memory, we were much in the same way in New England, but in later times we have run a gadding abroad too much to seek for eatables, drinkables, and wearables. Your life and mine for almost a half century have been nearly all of a piece, resembling in the whole in mine the Gulf Stream, chased by three British frigates in a hurricane from the northeast and a hideous tempest of thunder and lightning, which cracked out our mainmast, struck three and twenty men on deck, wounded four and killed one. I do not remember that my feelings during those three days were very different from what they have been for fifty years. What an exchange you have made of newspapers for Newton, rising from the lower deep of the lowest deep of dullness and bathos to the contemplation of heaven and the heavens of heavens. Oh, that I had devoted to Newton and his fellows that time which I fear has been wasted on Plato and Aristotle, Bacon, DeLome, Harrington, Sidney, Hobbes, with twenty others upon subjects with mankind is determined never to understand. So, you know, very quickly, there's an acknowledgement to the common bond just that Jefferson had done to him, and also an acknowledgement of what Jefferson had said, that, oh, I've given up politics and given up newspapers to read Newton. And he's saying that while he's envious, in a sense, Adams, that Jefferson has spent his time reading science, where he was spending time on philosophical and political science reading and doesn't feel like he's getting any answers. The Union is still to me an object of as much anxiety as ever independence was. To this I have sacrificed my popularity in New England, 
And yet, what treatment do I still receive from the Randolphs and the Sheffies of Virginia? By the way, are these not Eastern Shore men? I have read uh, Thucydides and Tacticus so often that at such distant periods of my life that elegant, profound, and enchanting as is their style, I am weary of them. When I read them, I seem to only be reading the history of my own times and my own life. I am heartily weary of both, i.e. of recollecting the history of both, for I'm not weary of living. Whatever a peevish patriarch might say, I have never seen the day which I would say I have had no pleasure, or that I have had more pain than pleasure. Gary Payne, John Adams, Robert Livingston, Benjamin Rush, and George Clymer, and yourself are all that I can recollect of the subscribers to Independence who remain. Jerry's acting as a decided and splendid part. This is uh, the point at which um, he's governor of Massachusetts. So daring and hazardous a part, but at the same time, so able and upright. I say, God save the governor and prosper long our noble governor. That's a that's a good thing to throw out to an audience like Thomas Jefferson because Jerry is running as a, um, and this is the famous Elbert Jerry, Elbridge Gary, depending on how you pronounce it, of gerrymandering uh, fame. And one of the ways they say that he was, there was a support base built for his governorship is that they used creative districting uh, during the, in the Massachusetts election to get a Democratic Republican government in Massachusetts. This is a time where the, in 1812, where the Federalist Party has collapsed, and even people like John Adams and John Quincy Adams are more of moderates, uh, going somewhere between the the Federalist and Democratic-Republican factions. And eventually, John Adams is actually going to stand as an elector for James Monroe and complete that task. So it's a good thing to throw off that he salutes uh, Jerry because... In in essence, Jerry's the same party as Jefferson. I walk every fair day, sometimes three or four miles. Ride now and then, but very rarely no more than 10 or 15 miles. But I have a complaint that nothing but the ground can cure, and that is the palsy, a kind of paralytic affection of the nerves, which makes my hands tremble and renders it difficult to write at all and impossible to write well. I have the start of you in age by at least 10 years, but you are advanced to the rank of a great-grandfather before me. Of 13 grandchildren, I have two, William and John Smith, three girls, Carolyn Smith, Susanna, and Abigail Adams, who you might, who might have made me great-grandchildren enough. But they are not likely to employ their talents very soon. They're all good boys and girls, however, and are the solace of my age. I cordially reciprocate your professions of esteem and respect. Madam joins and sends her kind regards to your daughter and your grandchildren as well as yourself. John Adams. With a postscript. I forgot to remark your preference to savage over civilized life. I have something to say upon the subject. If I am in error, can you set me right? But by all I know, of one or the other, 
I would rather be the poorest man in France or England, with sound health of body and mind, than the proudest king, Sachem, or warrior of any tribe of savages in America. So an interesting letter, and they actually are going to have a series of letters where they discuss the Indian people and where they came from, where we think they came from, and some of the crazy ideas out there that the Indian tribes are actually related to the Jewish people, which they don't take seriously but do discuss. And uh, they'll, they'll converse a bit about this topic, among many others. But it does get them a bit away from politics. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And here's what Jefferson writes back to Adams. I have it now in my power to send you a piece of homespun in return for that I received from you, not of the fine texture or delicate character of yours, to drop our metaphor, filled as that was with the display of imagination which constitutes excellence in letters, but a more sober, dry, and formal piece of logic. Onari res ipsa negat, he writes, which in Latin is, the subject itself refuses to be embellished. Yet, you may have enough left of your old taste for our law reading to cast an eye over some of the questions it discusses. At any rate, it is the offering of esteem and friendship. What he sends him is the proceeding of the government of the United States in maintaining the public right to the beach of the Mississippi adjacent New Orleans against the intrusion of Edward Livingston prepared for the use of counsel by Thomas Jefferson. Livingston had acquired lands in New Orleans as payment for legal fees, but he was dispossessed of them by the United States as sovereign of the soil. 
He brought action in the federal court in New Orleans to recover damages without success. And these were Jefferson's legal instructions to his lawyer that helped win the case for the government. Jefferson continues, You wish to know something of the Richmond and Wabash prophets. Of Nimrod Hughes, I have never before heard. Christopher McPherson, I have known for 20 years. Now, in between, Adams has sent another letter and asked him about some specific Indians uh, in, in, in an addendum to his postscript of the last letter. The Wabash prophet is a very different character, more rogue than fool, if, it, if to be a rogue is not the greatest of all follies. He arose to notice while I was in the administration and became a course of proper subject of inquiry for me. The inquiry was made with diligence. His declared object was the reformation of his red brethren and their return to their pristine manner of living. He pretended to be in constant communication with the great spirit and that he was instructed by them to make known the Indians that they were created by him distinct from the whites of different natures for different purposes and placed under different circumstances, adapt to their nature and destinies, that they must return from all the ways of the whites to the habits and opinions of their forefathers that they must not eat the flesh of hogs, of bullocks, of sheep, the deer and buffalo having been created for their food. They must not make bread of wheat, but of Indian corn. They must not wear linen or woolen, but dress like their fathers in the skins and furs of wild animals. I concluded from all this that he was a visionary, enveloped in the clouds of their antiquities, and vainly endeavoring to lead back his brethren to the fancies beatitudes of their golden age. I thought there was little danger in his making many proselytes from the habits and comforts that they learned from the whites of the hardships and privations of sad- savagism. So it did no harm if he did. We let him go, therefore unmolested. But his followers increased till the English thought him worth corruption and found him corruptible. I suppose his views were then changed, but his proceedings in consequence of them were after I left the administration and therefore unknown to me. So the prophet that he speaks of is Tenskwatawa, that is Tecumseh's brother and the Indian prophet. Adams then receives the book from Jefferson and has this comment. Yesterday I received from the post office, under an envelope inscribed with your hand, but without any letter, a very learned and ingenious pamphlet prepared by you for the use of your counsel in the case of Edward Livingston against you. Mr. Ingersoll of Philadelphia, two or three years ago, sent me two large pamphlets on the same subject. Nettie is a naughty lad as well as a saucy one. I have forgotten about his lying. He's referring to Edward Livingston. Villainy in his fictitious fabricated case of a Jonathan Robbins who never existed. His suit against you, I hope, has convinced you of his character. What has become of his defalcation and plunder of the public? I rejoice, however that you have been plagued by this fellow because it stimulated you to research that cannot fail to be of great use to your country. You are brought up to the view of the young generation of lawyers in our country, tracts and regions of legal information of which they had never dreamed, but will become every day more and more necessary for our courts of justice to investigate. Good God, is a president of the United States to be subject to a private action of every individual? This will soon introduce an axiom that the president can do no wrong, or another equally curious one, that the president can do no right. 
Now, Adams um, then writes another letter before Jefferson gets back to him, and he also starts to mention some of the events of 1812 that are starting to go on. The embargo and the vote against any augmentation of the Navy, more than the taxes and threats or prospect of war, have raised a storm in Massachusetts and New York, which has hurled Jerry out of office and electrified and revolutionized all the subsequent elections. How far the hurricane or earthquake shall extend, I know not. But if it should not essentially hazard Mr. Madison's election, I fear it will not embarrass or paralyze his administration. Madison is running for re-election in 1812, and there'll be an electoral college vote at the end of the year. In one of your letters, you mentioned the confused traditions of Indian antiquities. Is there any book that pretends to give any account of these traditions? Or how can we acquire any idea of them? Have they any order of priesthood among them, like the Druids, the Bards, or the minstrels of the Celtic nations, etc. And Jefferson writes back to Adams, now it's June of 1812. You ask if there is any book that pretends to give any account of the traditions of Indians, or how one can acquire of them. Some scanty accounts of their traditions, but fuller of their customs and characters, are given us most by the early travelers among them. These, you know, are chiefly French, and Adir and Englishmen have written on this subject. But unluckily, Laftu, one of these uh, writers, had had in his head a preconceived theory on the mythology, manners, and institutions of government of the ancient nations of Europe, Asia, and Africa, and seems to have entered on those of America only to fit them in the same frame and to draw them in a confirmation of his general theory. He keeps a perpetual parallel in all those articles between the Indians of America and the Antients of other quarters of the globe. He selects, therefore, all the facts and adopts all the falsehoods with favor his theory. Adair, too, had his kink. He believed that all the Indians of America to be descended from the Jews, the same laws, usages, rites, and ceremonies, the same sacrifices, priests, prophets, fasts, and festivals, almost the same religion, and that they all spoke Hebrew. You ask further if the Indians have any order of priesthood among them, like the Druids, the Bards, or minstrels of the Celtic nations. Adair alone, determined to see what he wished to see, in every object, metamorphosizes the conjurers into an order of priests and describes their sorceries as if they were the great religious ceremonies of the nation. The present state of the several Indian tribes without any public order of priests is proof sufficient that they never had such an order. Their steady habits permit no innovations, not even those which the progress of science offers to increase their comforts, enlarge their understanding, and improve the morality of mankind. Indeed, so little an idea they have of a regular order of priests that they mistake ours for their conjurers and call them by that name. So, much in answer to your inquiries concerning injury, it, concerning Indians, a people with whom I, in the very early part of my life, I was familiar and acquired impressions of attachment and commiseration for them, which have never been obliterated. Before the revolution, they were in the habit of coming often and in great numbers to the seat of our government, where I was very much with them. I knew the great warrior and orator of the Cherokees. He was always the guest of my father on his journeys to and from Williamsburg. I was in his camp when he made his great farewell oration to his people the evening before his departure to England. The moon was in full splendor, and to her he seemed to address himself in his prayers for his safety on the voyage and that of his people during his absence. His sounding voice distinct articulation, animated action, and the solemn silence of his people at their several fires filled me with awe and veneration. 
although I did not understand a word he uttered. The nation, consisting now of about 2,000 warriors, and the Creeks of about 3,000, are far advanced in civilization. They have good cabins, enclosed fields, large herds of cattle and hogs, spin and weave their own clothes and cotton, have smiths and other of the most necessary tradesmen, write and read, and are on the increase in numbers. And a branch of the Cherokees is now instituting a regular representative government. Some other tribes were advocating the same line. Of those who have made any progress, English seductions will have no effect, but the backward will yield and be thrown farther aback. These will relapse into barbarism and misery, lose numbers by war and want, and we shall be obliged to drive them with the beasts of the forest into the stony mountains. They will be conquered, however, in Canada. The possession of that country secures our women and children forever from the tomahawk and scalping knife by removing those who excite them. And for this possession, orders, I presume, are being issued by this time, taking for granted that the doors of Congress will reopen with a declaration of war, that this may end in indemnity for the past, security for the future, and complete emancipation from Anglomani, Gallomani, and all the manias of demoralized Europe, and that you may live in health and happiness to see all this, is the sincere prayer of yours affectionately, Thomas Jefferson. Now, I do think it's interesting because when they began the correspondence, he was saying he's not involved in politics, and maybe he's not interested in personal politics, but here he is really showing that he's in support of war, and this is as the War of 1812 is is starting and it's going, and that declaration of war will be voted in Congress. And Jefferson puts himself in this letter to Adams as very much a supporter of the invasion of Canada, which he and I believe a lot of people at the time thought would be an easy task. It did not turn out to be so. By the time Adams writes back, in addition to discussing many thoughts about Indians, uh, I have felt an interest in the Indians and a commiseration for them from my childhood. Various tribes were frequent visitors at my father's house at least 70 years ago. I have a distinct remembrance of their forms and figures. They were very aged to the tallest and the stoutest Indians I have ever seen. The titles of king and priest and the names of Moses and Aaron were given to them, no doubt, by our Massachusetts divines and statesmen. There was a numerous family in this town whose wigwam was within a mile of this house. This family were frequently at my father's house, and I, in my boyish rambles, used to call them at their wigwam, where I never failed to be treated with whortleberries, blackberries, strawberries, or plums, peaches, etc., for they had planted a variety of fruit trees about them. But he also, uh, in addition to talking about Indians and discussing whether there's a priesthood among them, it's 1812, so he says, We now have war in earnest. I lament the spirit that appears about me, but I lament the cause that has given too much apology for it, the total neglect and absolute refusal of all maritime protection and defense. Here again, uh, though Adams and Jefferson have sworn off politics, and they're not attacking each other over anything. In fact, in a future letter, Jefferson, uh, Adams, I mean, is going to salute Jefferson for having been one of the early proponents of a Navy in the first administration. But they are discussing political policy issues. 
And here he says, Money, mariners, and soldiers would be at the public service if only a few frigates would have been ordered to be built. Without this, our union will be a brittle china vase, a house of ice, or a palace of glass. I am, sir, with an affectionate respect, yours. So, I think you see a little difference there uh, in how the War of 1812 is going to go, and I think it comes from their different geography. Massachusetts is pointed towards the ocean. Adams knows that through several Republican administrations, there was a resistance to spending too much on a federal Navy, and he sees America as unprotected. Jefferson in the state of Virginia, but somewhat back in the state of Virginia, is more pointed towards the mountains and the western lands and sees the taking of Canada as a solution to all of the problems that the British are causing, stirring up trouble among the Indians far on the border, far from the border. And so you can see the different optimism. He thinks, well, we're going to we're going to take out all our problems with this war, and Adams thinks it's a, America's a glass palace. With that, I'm going to skip to the next year, 1813. This is Adams to Jefferson. Never mind it, my dear sir, if I write four letters to your one, your one is worth more than my four. It is true that I can say and have said nothing new on the subject of government, yet I did say in my defense and in my discourses on Davila, though with an uncouth style, what is new to Locke, to Harrington, to Milton, to Hume, to Montesquieu, to Price, to Franklin, and to yourself, and that at that time, almost all Europe and America, I can prove all this by indisputable authorities and documents. Writings on government had not only been neglected, but discountenanced and discouraged throughout all of Europe, from the restoration of Charles II in England, Till the French Revolution commenced. The English Commonwealth and the fate of Charles I and the military dis- despotism of Cromwell had sickened mankind with disquisitions on government to such a degree that there was scarcely a man in Europe who had looked to the subject. David Hume had made himself so fashionable with the aid of the court and clergy. A theist, as they called him, and by his elegant lies against the Republicans and gaudy disturbings and gaudy daubings of the courtiers, that he had nearly laughed into contempt, Rapine Sidney and even Locke. Adams continues, It was ridiculous and even criminal in all of Europe to speak of constitutions or writers upon principles or the fabrics of them. In this state of things, my poor, unprotected, unpatronized books appeared and met with a fate not so cruel as I had anticipated. The three emperors of Europe, the prince regents, and all the ruling powers would no more countenance or tolerate such writings than the Pope, the Emperor of Haiti, Ben Austin, or Tom Paine. People that in, in 1813 might be uh, a negative in Europe, persona non grata in Europe. So that's interesting. I think we see that uh, John Adams is self-depreciating and doesn't have a lot of optimism uh, about how famous he's going to be or how his books have been received. But he also feels that Americans have an important contribution to make to political writing because a lot of it had stopped in Europe because the monarchy had put a a quash on it after the English Civil War. 
In truth, my defense of constitutions laid the foundation of that immense unpopularity which fell like a tower upon me. Your steady defense of democratical principles and your invariable favorable opinion of the French Revolution laid the foundation for your unbounded popularity. Again, in these letters, now we're, now we're in the next year of their letter writing, and they had said that they sworn off politics, but they seem to keep talking about it. And Adams wants to get his little jab about how he wants to interpret history to Jefferson. Again, they're not arguing with each other, but they are making points. It's going to be Adams writing six letters, additional letters, before Jefferson can respond. Since your letter of June 27th, Jefferson writes to Adams, August 1813, I am in debt for many, all of which I've read with infinite delight. They open up a wide field for for reflection and offer subjects enough to occupy the mind and the pen indefinitely. I must follow the good examples you have set. And when I have not time to take up every subject, take up a single one. Your approbation of my outline to Dr. Priestley is a great gratification. I very much suspect that if thinking men would have the courage to think for themselves and to speak what they think, it would be found that they do not differ in religious opinions as much as is supposed. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. They have a number of discussions about religion over the course of 1813. Here's one letter from September, John Adams to Thomas Jefferson. It appears to me that the great principle of the Hebrews was the fear of God, that of the Gentiles, honor of the gods, that of Christian, the love of God. Could the quiveration of my nerves and the inflammation of my eyes be cured and my age diminished by 20 or 30 years? I would attend you in these researches with infinitely more pleasure than I would reading about George IV, Napoleon, Alexander, or Madison, but only a few hours. A few moments remain for your old friend, John Adams. And he continues in another letter, Now, is this not the essence of Christian devotion? Is not Christian piety? Is it not an acknowledgement of the existence of a supreme being, of his universal providence, of a righteous administration of the government and universe? 
What can Jews, Christians, or Mohammedans do more? Reference to Muslims. Priestly, the heroic Priestly, would have not dared to answer to ask those questions, though he might have answered them consistently enough with the spirit of his system. In this manner are the most ancient Greek theologians rendered and transmitted to our youth by the Christians. For we are of your race, being only a copy of your voice. However many a mortal lives or creeps on the earth. I presume this is the phrase quoted by St. Paul when he says to the Athenians, One of your own poets have said, We are all his offspring, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of our own poets have said, We are also his offspring. He goes on into many Greek thinkers and says, Such a canvas is too broad for the age of 70, and especially of one whose chief occupations have been the practical business of life. We must leave it, therefore, to others, younger and more learned than we, to prepare this euthanasia for Platonic Christianity and its restoration to the primitive simplicity of its founder. An expression of your letter of September, that the human understanding is a revelation of its maker, gives the best solution that I believe can be given of the question, what did Socrates mean by his demon? He was too wise to believe and too honest to pretend that he had real and familiar converse with a superior and invisible being. He probably considered the suggestions of his conscience or reason as revelations, inspirations from a supreme mind bestowed on important occasions by a special superintending providence. Jefferson, in his uh, response letter in 1813, Dodges some of the religious talk. He Adams has now written about five letters to Jefferson's one uh, in 1813. It's a particularly productive year for Adams' letters and less so for Jefferson. He's going to apologize in early 1814. He's been visiting his property more. He moves to political subjects, Jefferson to Adams. I think the best remedy is exactly that provided by all of our constitutions, to leave the citizens in the free election and separation of the aristo from the pseudo-aristo, of the wheat from the chaff. In general, they will elect the real good and wise. In some instances, wealth may corrupt and birth may blind them, but not in sufficient degree to endanger the society. It is probable that our difference of opinion may be in some measure produced by a difference in character in among who we live in those among whom we live. From what I have seen of Massachusetts and Connecticut myself, and still more from what I have heard, and the character given of the former by yourself, who shall know them much better, there seems to be in those two states a traditionary reverence for certain families, which has rendered the offices of government nearly hereditary in those families. I presume that from an early period of your history, members of these families happening to possess virtue and talents have honestly exercised them for the good of the people, and by their services have endeared their names to them. In coupling Connecticut with you, I mean it politically only, not morally, for having made the Bible the common law of their land, they seem to have modeled their morality on the story of Jacob and Laban. But although this hereditary succession of office, with you may in some degree be founded in, in real family merit, yet in much higher degree it has proceeded from your strict alliance of church and state. These families are canonized in the eyes of the people on the common principle that you tickle me and I will tickle you. In Virginia, we have nothing of this. Our clergy, before the revolution, having been secured against rivalship by fixed salaries, 
did not give themselves the trouble of acquiring influence over the people. Of wealth, there were great accumulations in particular families, handed down from generation to generation under the English law of entails, but the only subject of ambition for the wealthy was a seat in the king's council. All their court was then paid to the crown and its creatures. They philipsized in all collisions between king and people. Hence, they were unpopular, and that unpopularity continues attached to their names. A Randolph, a Carter, a Burwell must have great personal superiority over a common competitor to be elected by the people, even at this day. So, Jefferson's making a little point that the South is different and more democratic than the New England area. Adams writes a letter on Christmas 1813. The fundamental principle of all philosophy and all Christianity is rejoice always in all things. Be thankful at all times for all good and all that we call evil. Will it not follow that I ought to rejoice, that I ought to rejoice and be thankful that Priestley has lived? Hey, that Voltaire has lived, that Gibbon has lived, that Hume has lived, though a conceited Scotchman, that Burke and Johnson have lived, though superstitious slaves or self-deceiving hypocrites both. Is it not laughable to hear Burke call Bolingbroke a superficial writer, to hear him ask whoever read him, whoever read him through? Had I been present, I would have answered, I, I myself has read him through more than 50 years ago, and more than five times in my life. I am not weary of writing. I am sure you must be of reading such incoherent rattle. I will not persecute you so severely in the future, if I can help it. So farewell. John Adams, Christmas, 1813. He's not going to get a response until January 24th in 1814. I do not remember the conversation between us, which you mentioned in yours of November 15th, on your proposition to vest in Congress the exclusive power of establishing banks. My opposition to it must have been grounded not on taking power from the states, but on leaving any vestige of it in existence, even in the hands of Congress, because it would only have been a change of the organ of abuse. I have ever been the enemy of banks, not of those discounting for cash, but of those foisting their own paper into circulation, thus banishing our cash. My zeal against those institutions was so warm and open at the establishment of the Bank of the United States that I was derided as a maniac by the tribe of bank mongers who were seeking to filch from the publish from the public their swindling and barren gains. But errors of that day cannot be recalled. The evils they have gendered are now upon us, and the question is, how are we to get out of them? Should we build an altar to the old paper money of the revolution, which ruined individuals but saved the republic, and burn on that all of the bank charters present and future with their notes with them? For these are to ruin both the republic and individuals. This cannot be done. The mania is too strong. It's seized by its delusions and corruptions. All of the members of our governments, general, special, and individual. Our circulating paper of last year was estimated at 200 millions of dollars. 
The new banks now petitioned for to the several legislatures are for about 60 millions additional capital and, of course, 180 millions of additional circulation, nearly doubling that of last year and raising the whole mass to near 400 millions. I have been endeavoring to persuade a friend in our legislature to try and save the state from the general ruin by timely interference. But it will not be done. You might as well with the sailors whistle into the wind as suggest precautions against having too much money. I think that's a good place to stop with that. We looked at some of the letters from 1812 and 1813. Their correspondence is going to continue to 1826. And I think the letters, as they continue, take on a very different character. And at different times, they're discussing events of the day. You hear references as in through the 1813 letters of John Adams talking about armies in the snow, and he's talking about the War of 1812 and what's going on there. And uh, you'll see more, and you'll see more of of that talk, and eventually you'll see letters where they're more excited because there's been an an armistice and, and what was considered by many Americans a victory. I'll continue with some of the Jefferson Adams letters. This is just a sample on the Premium Podcast. Thanks for your support.